the Giants, the Dodgers. The MLB postseason for the first time ever. But is that really true? I mean, these teams have been around for a long time. Well, it turns out it's true. It's technically true. But these two teams have been involved in some big postseason moments in the past a few times. And you probably know one of them. After all, if you're a baseball fan, you've definitely heard this one call. You know the one. It came in the starter pack when you first became a fan. That happened in 1951, when the New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers tied in the regular season, and they met for a best-of-three tiebreaker series. And yet, those games weren't considered the postseason. The San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers did this again in 1962, but MLB considered those games, and any tiebreakers that happen today, just an extension of the regular season. You see, back in those days, the postseason was just one thing, the World Series. There were no league championship series, no wild cards, none of that. If it wasn't the World Series, it wasn't the postseason. So, because of tradition, or baseball's hesitance to change things, we still call those tiebreakers part of the regular season. So... Because of that technicality, sure, 2021 is the first postseason matchup between these storied rivals. But there was one other time the Giants and Dodgers met in the postseason. But we don't really talk about it anymore. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, if you want to cut to the chase, it happened in 1889. The Giants and the Brooklyn team that we now call the Dodgers faced off in the World Series. The Giants won six games to three in a best of 11 series. So if you're focused on wins and losses, there you go. I've saved you the hour or so we're going to be talking about this. Baseball, though, is about far more than the box score. It's about the people behind the box score. It's about the season and the seasons it took to get there. And this isn't just about how these two teams made that series. It's about how and why these two teams were created at all. It's about how professional baseball set the rules for the game that we know today and survived the competition it faced. It's about the men who got us there. Spoiler alert, the men in this story aren't necessarily good ones. Baseball became the sport it is by people breaking the rules, acting out of greed, and then how others tried to fix it. And these men were complicit in some of the game's worst offenses. So let's take a look into history. Look at the times that allowed these two teams to be created and how these rivals helped shape baseball. This is the story of the birth of the Giants and Dodgers. We need to start at the beginning, the 
very beginning of professional baseball. Baseball in the late 1800s looked very different than the sport we know today. Pitchers threw underhand, and overhand pitching was specifically against the rules. Fields generally did not have outfield fences, so a hard-hit ball would just roll and roll until some outfielder chased it down. It's not like most games had fans out there. The home team got to choose who bat first, so it wasn't always the visiting team leading off the game. They didn't sing, take me out to the ball game, in the middle of the seventh inning, since it hadn't been written yet. There were no lights, so games would get called for darkness. And championships were determined by the record in the regular season. There were no playoffs. Baseball's first serious attempt at a national professional league was less like a league and more like a gaming club. It was named the National Association of Professional Baseball Players, but it was usually just called the National Association. Note that it was an association of players, not owners. It started in 1871, and things were run very loosely. Gamblers ran roughshod through the league, with its low payrolls encouraging players to find ways to make quick money. Teams would appear and disappear. In the five years the association existed, it had 24 different teams. Twelve of them played in just one season, and some of those didn't even survive the entire season they played. Only three teams played in all five seasons that the association existed. One of those teams played on baseball's first great baseball field, the Union Grounds, home of the Mutual Baseball Club of New York. Union Grounds was one of the first fully enclosed ballparks in the country. What it was not, however, was in New York City. Union Grounds sat in the Williamsburg neighborhood of Brooklyn, which at the time was an independent city separated from New York by the East River with no bridges connecting them. The Mutual never actually played in New York City, with homes both in Brooklyn and New Jersey before that. In fact, no top-level pro team had yet played games actually in Manhattan by 1880. But what Manhattan was missing, Brooklyn enjoyed. Union Grounds housed a few different teams, along with the Mutuals, over the National Association's lifespan, including the Eckford Club, the Atlantic Club, and, at one point, the Chicago White Stockings, for just one game after they lost their home in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. The Mutuals enjoyed a home advantage in fans that no team could compete with. In 1870, New York City was the most populous city in the country, while Brooklyn was the third most populous. Not surprisingly, one of those other two teams that survived all five years of the N.A. played in the second most populous city, the Athletic Club of Philadelphia. That third team that lasted all five seasons was the Boston Red Stockings, who actually won the N.A. in four of its five seasons. However, they aren't important to this story. Sorry, Boston. The association had many problems, but one of the biggest was getting fans to show up to games, which meant that sometimes you'd have a team that just 
wouldn't bother to show up to a game either. Many of the smaller western cities, like Keokuk, Iowa, with a population of just under 13,000 at the time, struggled to get fans to attend. Since there were no playoffs, and league champions were determined by the regular season record, sometimes those big East Coast clubs like New York and Philadelphia just wouldn't go if they'd already been eliminated, citing their own financial hardships. The National Association folded after 1875. However, the Chicago White Stockings owner, William Holbert, thought he could do better. So just a year later, he helped to organize a new league. And in 1876, the National League was born. Holbert wanted a league with stronger rules and control. One of his biggest goals was to end a practice called revolving, the free agency that saw players jump from team to team each year. He also wanted a league that saw more parity. New teams could only be in cities with a minimum population of 75,000, although the rule was given exceptions. Holbert believed in morality and wanted to draw more mature, higher society fans. Gambling was not to be tolerated, and the extremely moral Holbert banned alcohol sales at the ballpark. Ticket prices were also raised to 50 cents, which forced out a certain level of fan. He also eliminated games on the Sabbath, Sunday, despite that day having some of the best attendance of any day out of the week. Of course, it was important that all games were played as scheduled. Professional baseball needed to prove its credibility. Holbert, coming from one of the league's western cities, had a distrust of some of the big city eastern clubs. However, the league needed those cities. So he took some of the more established teams from the N.A., such as Philadelphia and New York, as well as putting together a few new teams. And yet, in the league's first season, once again, the Mutual and the Athletic refused to go west to face Chicago and St. Louis, again citing financial hardship. Perhaps they felt that the National League needed them more than they needed the league. Right or wrong, Hulbert believed that baseball needed credibility. He worked with the other owners for a vote, and the two big cities were outnumbered. New York and Philadelphia were expelled from the National League after the 1876 season. For the next two years, the National League fielded just six teams before it attempted to expand. Baseball was still being played in relatively big cities like Chicago and Boston, but it was now trying to establish itself in smaller cities like Indianapolis and Providence. Over its first six seasons, 15 different teams played in the league. Some disbanded. Others were kicked out by the Hulbert-led group of owners for violating his moral ideals. Only two teams appeared in every year from 1876 through 1882, Boston and Chicago. One team in a smaller city that had problems was the Hartford Dark Blues. They were struggling after just their first year, so they turned to William Kammeyer, who was the owner of the now-disbanded Mutual of New York and also still the owner of the Union Grounds in Brooklyn. 
He offered the park to Hartford to be a new home at a price, and Hartford accepted. However, they kept the Hartford name, giving Brooklyn a new level of Anaheim treatment. The Hartford Dark Blues were jokingly called the Brooklyn Hartfords, but it was no joke to their owner. The rent was too much, and Brooklyn fans did not embrace this new team. So the Blues were disbanded a year later, and would be the last Major League team to play at the Union grounds. Many teams came and went out of the National League during this time. St. Louis, Providence, Milwaukee, Troy, and Syracuse were just a few of the cities that briefly were a part of the league. But one team that was kicked out of the National League in 1880 changed everything. Cincinnati. The owner of the expelled Cincinnati Stars, Justice Thorner, was also the owner of a brewery, so he clashed with Halbert's cabal of NL owners over the various restrictions due to those morals. He rented out his ballpark on Sundays and served alcohol. After being kicked out of the National League, Thorner began to collect other owners who disliked the rules. They included saloon owner Chris Vandera of St. Louis, and a remade Philadelphia Athletics team. By 1882, with a new team in Cincinnati called the Red Stockings, the teams became the new American Association. Holbert passed away just before the 1882 season, so he would not see this competition. But these two professional baseball leagues were about to clash for supremacy. But there was one big hole in both teams' maps. Although the American Association had brought back the Athletic Club of Philadelphia, neither league had a team in New York City or Brooklyn. But that didn't mean that there wasn't baseball brewing in New York. In late 1879, the sun went down on the final game of the season for a team playing in Brockton, Massachusetts. Brockton was tied, and they needed this game to determine who would be the championship of their league. But when the game ended early with no result, it left the team's season and the league's championship in question. However, for Jim Mutry, the manager of the team, he was trying not to let the sun set on his baseball career. He was called Truthful Jim, because he knew how to talk. People didn't always know if he was telling the truth, but Jim Mutry knew how to get people to listen to him. Depending on which interview you read, he either didn't begin playing baseball until after he was 20 when he gave up cricket, or he was a teenager playing baseball on the Boston Commons, entertaining Civil War vets. In 1876, when the National League was being founded, Mutri got recruited to play for a team in Fall River, one of the many smaller regional pro baseball leagues. It was another one of the players, Bill McGonigal, who was called Gunner, who got Mutri to join the team. However, Mutri's skills in talking and leadership were clear, because when the team's captain retired mid-season, Mutri got the role. Now, Fall River was a star-studded team, It had no less than seven future National League stars, including Mutri and McGonagall. Mutri had a hand in that, too. When Fall River played a game in Portland, Maine, 
They faced a towering left fielder named George Gore, who absolutely destroyed Fall River in the game. So, after the game, Mutri took Gore to dinner and convinced him to join Fall River instead. However, that kind of a player movement was also what undid Fall River. Gunnar McGonagall moved up to the National League team in Buffalo, where he would briefly be captain, while Mutri and others were lured to a new team in New Bedford, Massachusetts. New Bedford was run by Frank Bancroft, who was not a player. Instead, he saw baseball as a business opportunity, and he treated his team like a touring group of actors. He scheduled his team to play 130 games in 1878, which was far higher than the few dozen games many teams would play in a year. He even once scheduled a July 4th triple header that was played in three different cities in one day. Bancroft was successful financially, but Mewtwo is not as successful as a player under him, struggling to both hit and field. It seems that Mewtwo learned from Bancroft in other ways. Mewtwo followed Bancroft to Worcester, in 1879, but was soon cut from the team. However, Mutri would be offered a manager's position in Brockton, Massachusetts. He led that team to the brink of the championship, that game that the sun set on. But as 1880 rolled around, he began to focus on a new, bigger, and much more ambitious opportunity, one that everyone in baseball knew was available. Getting a team in New York City. The problem was, how? Before the 1880 season, Mutri was working on moving the team in Brockton to New York. At first, he tried to get the team to play in a floundering independent league that had taken the name of the National Association, no association with the original. But he needed a place to play near New York City. He focused first on finding a field to play in Jersey City, but by March he was meeting with William Cammeyer, former owner of the Mutuals of New York, and still the owner of the Union Grounds. However, nothing came from those meetings, and he returned to Brockton, Massachusetts, where he called his team Jersey City while playing a few states away from there. The Washington Post even made an announcement that Mutri's team had an agreement to join this new national association and just play in Brockton until the field was ready. The field never materialized. In July of 1880, the Brockton team disbanded, and Mutri was out of baseball. He would take a job in a box factory in New York City. While in New York... Legend states that Mutri watched a local amateur baseball game and approached the pitcher of the losing team after the game with an offer to build a better team, a championship-level team, if that pitcher would foot the bill. That pitcher was a local businessman, John B. Day, and Day agreed. Of course, this story could be a legend by Truthful Jim. A more mundane version of the story simply states that local sports writers introduced the two, which makes a lot more sense. However it happened, they worked together. Mutri brought his baseball knowledge in his boastful ways. Day brought the money and his business connections. One such connection was with James Bennett, 
who was the son of the founder of the New York Herald newspaper. Bennett happened to have some land that they thought could be used for a stadium. The land was actually in Manhattan, adjacent to the north end of Central Park, and it was so big that it was more than twice as big as what was needed for baseball. Bennett and his wealthy friends, they used that land to play polo. By September of 1880, Mutri had a team together to play, and by the end of the month, Day had a stadium ready to play in. On September 29th, the first professional baseball game was played in Manhattan. Finally, New York City had its first pro team. It would join the Eastern Championship Association for the 1881 season, easily winning its championship, and was already playing exhibition games against National League teams. Mutri named his new team the New York Metropolitans. In the next chapter of Birth of the Rivalry, two leagues fight for the new team, and it ends in an unexpected twist. A new team arises in the cradle of baseball, and a bet between two old teammates starts a tradition that changes professional sports. Birth of the Rivalry was written and performed by Kevin J. Cunningham for GiantFutures.com. Published 2021. All rights reserved.